Hallelujah. I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 16, where we've been teaching from for a number of weeks, a series on keys of the kingdom of God. Jesus questions his disciples about who people say that he is, and then he asks them, who do, men, who do you say I am? Peter answers and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answers him and says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed unto thee, <clears throat> Excuse me, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say un- also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The rock he's talking about is the knowledge of who Jesus is. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. My favorite translation on this verse is the gates of hell shall not be able to hold out against it. Verse 19, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We've made this statement before. In case you weren't with us, we'll say it again. People didn't use keys the way that we do now in uh, present days. Uh, We think of keys as being car keys, house keys, office keys, and whatever else to unlock locks. And in one sense, that uh, that analogy would work here in this this place where Jesus talked about the keys of the kingdom. But specifically, in Roman times, keys were given as diplomas or as what we would consider to be a diploma for a completion of certain areas of study. You'd wear those keys around your belt and it was a sign that you were an intellectual or that you'd mastered some field of study, whatever it was that you'd um, undertaken. So when Jesus says, I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, notice he's talking about in relation to building the church. Notice also he connects the keys of the kingdom of heaven with authority whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven one translation says it this way and might bring a little bit more understanding to us I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven and you have authority to bind on earth what's already been bound in heaven you have authority to loose on earth what's already been loosed in heaven And all that comes about as a result of what he said he's giving to the church or would give to the church following his resurrection, I guess, would be a better way to say it, is the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about mastering the principles that govern the kingdom of heaven. Now, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are used pretty much interchangeably throughout the Gospels. There are a couple of places where it means something specific about heaven itself. But we're not looking at those scriptures or the context of those scriptures in this study. So where he talks about, uh, for our purposes, when he talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about, uh, he uses those terms interchangeably. Now in Matthew chapter 6, when the disciples asked him to teach them to pray, Jesus gives them what is known in church world as the Lord's Prayer. It really isn't the Lord's Prayer, it's the disciples' prayer. And it's not a New Testament prayer. And I'll show it to you very clearly. It's easy to see. But Jesus taught them to pray, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. So I want you to notice that Jesus tells the disciples to pray that the kingdom of God would come, which means it had not come when he was here on the earth. Well, we know that the Bible says the kingdom of God has come now. We'll prove that in some of the scriptures we look at as we go forward. But the kingdom of God was completed and brought to the earth through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. If the kingdom of God had not come, you wouldn't be able to be born again. But now the Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Well, what changed? The kingdom of God came. That which God intended from the beginning to be joined eternally with his creation, his man, here on the earth in spirit created after his image and in his likeness was accomplished once and for all so notice Jesus tells the disciples to pray that the kingdom of God would come thy kingdom come 
thy will be done. What is the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus defines it. He says, thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as Jesus describes it is where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. Now, if you think back to the original creation, Genesis chapter 1, account of the creation of the earth, <clears throat> you see that that's exactly what took place. God made the earth in such a way that everything in it, it and everything in it was perfect. There was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind. Even after he created man on the sixth day, he looked and said that it was very good. And so he rested. There was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind. There was no weeds. There was no thorns. There was no sickness. There was no disease. There was nothing that was outside the realm of God's will. In other words, he created a kingdom where his will was on earth just like it is in heaven. Well, sin's the thing that messed that up. When sin came in upon the scene, man fell from his position of fellowship and, well, literally relationship with God. He became estranged or separated. He died spiritually, which means separation from God. And then sin began to rule and reign on the earth. But that's not the way the earth was created to be. That's not the way that God's, in, God's original kingdom or system was designed to operate. So Jesus says, thy king, tells the disciples to pray that the kingdom of God would come, that the will of God would be done on the earth just like it is in heaven. You know, it's an amazing thing. It's really a foolish thing on the part of the church to question what God's will is here on the earth. Like God's different because we're here than he would be if we were there. But the Bible says God never changes. So God doesn't have one will now while we're here and another will for when we get to heaven. And you know as well as I do that most of the church world is looking for heaven as a means of escape. Now, don't get me wrong. They want to spend eternity with God. They love God and love Jesus and all that stuff. That's not what I mean. But most of the church world looks at heaven as a means of escaping the sin, sickness, destruction, poverty, and evils of this world. Well, if God's the same there as he is when we're here, then why would he want something different for us here than he has provided for us there? The Holy Spirit brought something to my attention some months ago now that really shocked me because of all the questions that I've had where people ask me what the will of God is for their life or in their situation or whatever the case is. Nobody has ever asked me about the will of God in heaven. Ever. Closest I've come to it is where a couple of women whose, whose husbands had died wanted to know if they'd be married in heaven and how that was going to work and that kind of stuff. But nobody really asks you about the will of God in heaven. The devil doesn't bug you about the will of God in heaven. There's no church teaching against the will of God in heaven. Everybody accepts the will of God in heaven as a perfect environment, perfect kingdom, perfect system. Everything's perfect. Nobody questions whether or not there's sickness or disease there. Nobody questions whether there's going to be poverty or lack there. Nobody questions if there's going to be any reason to be depressed or upset or Anything like that. Everybody realizes that heaven is heaven and that's why it's named heaven. Well, what makes heaven different from here? God's the same. God created the same system to operate here on this earth as he did to operate in heaven. There's only one difference. You're the same. You'll be the same here as you are in heaven. Let's hope that we know more when we get there. But we're still the same. There's only one difference, and that is there we won't be in the presence of our enemies. And here we have an enemy operating against us. That's the only difference. But the name of Jesus is not going to be different in heaven than it is here. The power of God is not going to be different in heaven than it is here. God's willingness for you to use and benefit from his power in the name of Jesus is not going to be different there than it is here. So what's the real difference? seems to me the difference is what we think that we're able to do here as opposed to what we think we're able to do there. 
Now, we see what Jesus said about the kingdom of heaven, and we'll, we'll look real quickly at these scriptures. We've covered them before. But again, for those of you that may not have been with us, in Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10, Jesus calls his 12 disciples. He appoints them to do the work that he was doing here on the earth. Starting in Luke chapter 9 and verse 1, then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Now, I'll have to plead guilty to thinking that the kingdom of God until recently, very recently as a matter of fact, I've always looked at the kingdom of God. I've never looked at Matthew 6 verse 10 as being the definition of the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know why, I just never did. Never focused on it, never spent any time with it. I always considered the kingdom of God to just be a general thing, general term that meant things about God. But now let me ask you a question. Jesus is in his first year of ministry, first of three years of ministry. And he picks 12 guys and he tells them to go preach the kingdom of God. If that term kingdom of God just means stuff about God, then my question is first, what do they know about God to preach? These are unsaved men. These are men that when they do get something by the Holy Ghost, Jesus has to commend them for it. As we saw an example in, uh, as we saw in Matthew 16 as an example. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Blessed art thou, Simon, because you heard from heaven. Well, now that means a couple of things, folks. That means that Jesus could not have, been, could not have instructed his disciples to go preach that he was the Son of God. If he had, then why would he ask him, who do you say I am? Or why would their answer not have been, well, you're who you've told us you are? Or you, you are who you've proven yourself to be by giving us your name to cast out devils and to heal the sick. The fact that he asked them, who do you say I am, is a real clear indicator to me that they have not been preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, then what in the world have they been preaching? That came as a shock to me, folks. I'm glad to say that I'm learning. I'm sad to say that I just learned that recently. But thank God at least we have a chance to keep growing. So what in the world have they been preaching? He told them to preach the kingdom of God, to cast out devils and to heal the sick. So what have they been preaching? Stuff about God? They don't know stuff about God. Every time Jesus tells them stuff about God and uses a parable, they have to ask him later, what that mean? Well, then what in the world are they preaching? Folks, there's only one thing that gives us an answer, and that's the definition of the kingdom of God that we just saw in Matthew 6.10, where the will of God is done in the earth just like it is in heaven. These guys must have gone out and preached. It's the will of God for you to be free, so they cast out devils. It's the will of God for you to be healed, so they healed the sick. Look at Luke chapter 10. This is where Jesus sends out the 70. We won't read everything that he, uh, that he said to them, but we'll start in verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place where he himself would come. Now notice he did not tell them, you're my front men, so go into the city and tell them that I'm the son of God and I'm on the way. Instead, he told them, skip down with me to verse 9. He said, well, I guess we would back up to verse 8 and get a context. He said, and into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you. Eat such things that are set before you. Cities or people receiving the, the 70 was not a guarantee. If they will receive you, then eat what they set before you, verse 9, and heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Now, come nigh just means it's coming close or near. In other words, he said, heal the sick as proof that the kingdom of God is near. Heal the sick as proof that the kingdom of God is here. Well, is there anything that we can take away from that other than the fact 
that healing has to be a part of the kingdom of God? He did not say heal the sick and say God has taken a special liking to you. You're lucky because God wanted you to be healed, but he didn't want everybody to be well. No, he said heal the sick and say the kingdom of God has come nigh. We know from other places in Scripture in the Gospels that material things are part of the provision of material things are part of the provision of the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 6 talks about material things. Luke chapter 12 talks about material things. And Jesus said in both places, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, things, things shall be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God and the things will be added. But then things have to be connected to the kingdom of God then, don't they not? If you keep your priorities and your heart in the right place, if you make your pursuit the right thing, the will of God being done in your life here on the earth just like it is in heaven, then these things will be added to you. He went further in Luke chapter 12 and said, Fear not, little plot. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Talking about receiving or being provided for with material things. So these have to be a part of the things of the kingdom of God or a part of the kingdom of God where the will of God is done in the earth just like it is in heaven. Anybody going to be homeless in heaven? Anybody going to be begging on the street corner in heaven? Well, then it must not be God's will for that to be the case here. At least not for his children. Well, what do we have to keep us from those positions or those conditions of sickness and poverty and lack and, and so forth? The keys of the kingdom. Principles that we can master that will enable us to operate in God's will here on the earth just like it is in heaven. Now I want you to turn with me now to John chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1 and I'm going to read down through several verses. Because these are some fascinating scriptures. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Ruler means teacher or rabbi. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. In other, in other words, he said, we know that God sent you because of the stuff that you do. Now notice that Jesus does not rebuke him. He does not say, you unspiritual carnal person. Here you are looking at the things that I'm doing and you're missing the real point. Jesus seems to accept and understand by virtue of the fact that he's told his disciples to go do the same stuff that he was doing, the same wonders, the same signs, the same healing miracles and so forth that he was doing himself to cause people to see and know that God was with them or in their case that the kingdom of God was close, to, close at hand. Well, if that's what God knew would be the the result of Jesus doing healing works and miracles and signs and wonders, and that's what would cause people to, to conclude that God was with them, if he wanted that for his son, and Jesus said we were to do the same works as him, why would he want something different for us? Folks, I would submit to you that God doesn't want us want people to think that we're his children because we go to church. Although going to church is a good thing. I would submit to you that God does not want people to, to know that we're his children because we're Pentecostals. Although being Pentecostal is a good thing. Or Baptists or Methodists or Presbyterians or whatever else may be the case. I would submit to you that God wants people to know that we're his children. Because of the same things that Jesus showed and demonstrated when he was here on the earth. And there are two main things that Jesus showed and demonstrated when he was here. One was signs and wonders. Including healing miracles. And the second was love. That was beyond anything that anybody had ever experienced. Those are the two things that caused people to realize. That Jesus was sent from God. Why would it be different for us? 
I don't believe it is. Those should be the two things that we focus on and try to develop ourselves in so that the world will know who we are and therefore know who God is. Well, back to Nicodemus. We know that you're a teacher come from God because nobody can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, when I was a young, well, when I was a boy reading some of these things or hearing about some of these things in Sunday school, I thought and was really told to a great degree that Jesus changed the subject. That being born again was the most important thing in the world. I grew up in a Baptist church and and that was our focus on our mission, top to bottom. And so they use these scriptures as proof of the importance of being born again. Thank God it is of, of greatest importance. But they told me that Jesus changed the subject. I don't believe he did. I believe that Jesus, who is questioned about the signs and the wonders and the miracles that are occurring in his ministry, connects those signs and wonders and miracles with the kingdom of God. And that he tells Nicodemus the importance of the new birth in order to have access to this kingdom of God that Jesus is demonstrating. Nicodemus thinking naturally, and he doesn't understand what Jesus is getting to. And so Nicodemus answers, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? Notice what Nicodemus does not say. He does not say, Jesus, why are you changing the subject? I want to know about the wonders and the signs and the miracles. I want to know about you coming from God. That's what he's talked about. He understands there's a connection. He just doesn't understand how to uh, act on what Jesus has suggested. Jesus then explains, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, natural birth and a spiritual rebirth, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Notice in verse 3, he talked about seeing the kingdom of God in connection with the signs and wonders and miracles. Verse 5, he talks about entering into the kingdom of God. And both are connected with the new birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Well, thank God we can be born again. Nicodemus couldn't because Jesus had not yet been to the cross, but we can. So what does that mean? Well, that means since we're born again, we can see the kingdom of God. Since we've been born of water, natural birth, and a spiritual birth, rebirth, we can enter into the kingdom of God. Now, if the kingdom of God means the same thing here as Jesus defined it for us in Matthew chapter 6, then it means we can enter into the realm where the will of God is done in our lives here in the earth just like it is in heaven. And notice that comes from the new birth. One of the most amazing things about the scripture to me is when I realize that both the 12 and the 70 and at least one in, in one case where somebody that wasn't part of the 12 or the 70 used the name of Jesus as unrighteous men and got miraculous results. They had not entered into the kingdom of God. The only thing they were authorized to say was that it was close. Well, thank God it's more than close. It's here. But they did greater works than the modern day church is doing, having partaken and entered into the kingdom of God. How is that? Did they have more than we have? Not according to the scriptures, they didn't have as much. But they used what they had. I think the modern day church has sat back and settled for a whole lot less and said, well, now we're born again. We don't have to have all the signs and wonders and miracles. When the Bible says the very signs and wonders and miracles are a part of the born again experience that we've entered into. And again, God never changes. If it was God's will to demonstrate the work of Jesus or the fact that Jesus was his son, 
through signs and wonders and miracles when he was here on the earth. Why would he want to demonstrate who his son is in a different fashion now? Through us. I don't believe he does. Now let's keep reading here in John chapter 3. This is a fascinating passage of scripture to me. Because John wrote this some 60 years, maybe 65 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead. He wrote this in somewhere between 90 and 95 A.D. So it's about 60 or so years after Jesus is raised from the dead. The other three gospels are out there. Every other book of the New Testament has been written with the possible exception of Revelation. We don't know if if John wrote this before he wrote Revelation or after. But everything else, all the letters of Paul are there. All the letters of Peter are there. Both Peter and Paul are dead at the time John writes these things. And it seems to me, you judge this for yourself. I'm not saying this is gospel. But it seems to me that John fills in the blanks in a lot of things that the others left out. He tells us a lot of information about firsthand experience with Jesus, particularly on the night of his betrayal, that the other gospel writers don't give us, even though at least one of them was an eyewitness. So the fact that John comes in after the fact and is inspired by the Holy Ghost to write this tells me a couple of things. First of all, when Nicodemus came to Jesus, he didn't come to Jesus by himself. Or let me say it this way. It will make more sense if I say he didn't come to Jesus when Jesus was by himself. John must have been there maybe along with the others. Then that that begs the question for me, did Jesus say this for Nicodemus' sake? Or did he say this for the disciples' sake? Well, let's read forward. Where did we leave off? Uh, Verse 5. Except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee that you must be born again. The wind blows where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell where it comes from and whether it goes. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. In other words, he's talking about the the spirit and the new birth being an unseen operation. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? In other words, he's saying this should be Christianity 101. We should have an understanding of the new birth and what it means as a foundation for anything and everything else that there is. And I would submit to you folks that the reason that the church world as a whole is not a master of the things, the principles that govern the kingdom of God, is because we don't understand who we've been born unto. We don't understand what we've been born to do. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that which we know and testify that which we have seen. And you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Now notice that last phrase, the Son of Man which is in heaven. That's not in every translation. But the Jewish ones are. The Jewish ones have it. It's a a difficult scripture or difficult passage to interpret. Because Jesus said nobody goes to heaven except the one that's come down. And we know clearly he's talking about himself. And then he says, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. Well, now, is Jesus talking about himself? Is he saying that he's in heaven? Well, he's certainly not in heaven in a literal sense. There's only one way that I can interpret this. And that is he's speaking from a positional standpoint. I'm here on the earth, but I'm here as an emissary of God. And I'm still living from there. Now, that would certainly fit with the being born of the Spirit, wouldn't it? You judge that for yourself. But that's the only thing that makes sense out of it to me. Some translations, as I said, have difficulty with the translation, so they just leave it out altogether. They just cut it off with, No man has come down from heaven except the one that was sent. 
even the Son of Man, and stop it right there. But it is in the original text. And as Moses is lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Of course, he's talking about the crucifixion. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Notice Jesus is talking about the new birth as being disconnected from condemnation. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Notice God doesn't condemn man. Man condemns himself by his own desires. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now, I'll have to ask you again, if Nicodemus is coming by night, and it's an interesting thing also that Nicodemus is never referred to in in the Scripture, the Gospels, other than the one that came to Jesus by night. Coming to Jesus by night is an indication that he came in secret because he was afraid of what the other Pharisees, the other Jews might do if they knew he was a believer in Jesus. So why is he telling the guy that's hiding the most concise information, description of who he is, who Jesus is, and what he was sent to the earth to do? Why not preach that from the mountaintop? seems to me that he was saying it for the disciples' sake and not just for Nicodemus. But notice everything about what Jesus answered, everything about what Jesus said in the scriptures that we just read has to do with the original point that Jesus made, and that is the works are connected to the kingdom of God. And the new birth, the spiritual rebirth that comes from making Jesus the Lord of your life, Accepting his sacrifice as your own is the key to being born again. Now, for what purpose? To what end? Now we're born again. We've made Jesus the Lord of our lives. We've accepted his sacrifice. Now what? Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 tells us about the day of Pentecost. You know, the problem I have with working from an iPad, there's no scripture location point on the page. You're going to have to help me. You got your Bible? You got it open to chapter 2? Let me see it. Well, that's my problem. It's chapter 3. <laughs> Thank God I looked. I'd have been searching chapter 2 forever. Chapter 3 is not the day of Pentecost. Chapter 3 is the time when the man at the beautiful gate has been healed. And all the crowd comes together and Peter and John begin to preach to the crowd. I want you to notice something that they say. This is even a better example because it's in connection with a healing work or healing miracle. Notice what it says. Uh, Well, let's just pull verse 19 up. 
he's speaking to the crowd. Peter's speaking to the crowd. And he says, repent ye therefore and be converted. That your sins may be blotted out. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he will send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you. Whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. And notice that phrase. The times of restitution of all things. The times of restitution of all things. Which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. I want you to notice that heaven is holding on to Jesus. Until certain things are restored. Times of restitution means restored. Until certain things are restored. Now what are those certain things that are restored? Well Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that Jesus is waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. That means by us. So what things are to be restored? Well we won't take time to look at it but you can turn there if you want to. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 it tells us that God's original plan for man was to create him in his own image and after his own likeness. The original Hebrew in that, of that scripture means God made an exact copy of himself. God made man, God made you an exact copy of himself. For one purpose, and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. The next verse tells us where God commanded them to have dominion over the earth and subdue it. Now, can I ask you a question? We know that at the end of that day, the end of the sixth day when man was created God looked at everything that was made including man and said it's very good that means perfect there was nothing that could hurt there was nothing that could harm but that means that every tree had to produce perfect fruit that means there was no weeds to get into the garden there was no thorns to grow there was nothing they could alter the perfect state until man misused his authority and fell to sin. So what's there to subdue? To subdue means to bring it under control or to exercise dominion. So what's man to subdue? Well, Satan was obviously in the earth, you know, but there's no subduing the earth until after man fell. God gave man command. A command. That would stand. For even after he fell. Even after when he fell. There's nothing to subdue in the earth. There's not a blade of grass that could grow past its boundary. You know how you get some plants that will take over. We've got morning glory. We planted morning glory in our backyard some years ago. It's taken me three years to try to get rid of that stuff. Think you got it all and there's one, one new spray that comes up. Well, that would have been impossible before the fall. Everything would have maintained its boundary. Because that's the way God made it to be. So what's to subdue? Well, back to the original thought from Acts chapter 3. Heaven is holding on to Jesus until the times of restitution of all things. One of the things that has to be restored is man's authority here on the earth. See, God never changes. When God gave the original command or declared the original intent that man was going to be made in his image and after his likeness, and have dominion over all the works of his hands. Just because Satan came in and gummed up the system. Doesn't mean God's intent for man has changed. God still intends for man to have dominion over the works of his hands. God still intends for man to subdue the earth. God still expects man to master the principles. That govern the, the kingdom of God. The system that he originally designed. And that has never stopped being it's been corrupted by sin in the presence of spiritual death but God's system is still intact it's still operational turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is talking about Jesus dying for us. The context of these scriptures is Jesus dying for us. We referred to verse 17 earlier in the, uh, in the lesson or sermon or whatever it is I'm doing today. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Well, what things passed away and what things became new? Physical things didn't pass away. If you had brown eyes before you got saved, you got brown eyes after you got saved. If you had brown hair before you got saved, you had brown hair after you got saved. If you had no hair before you got saved, you didn't grow hair because you got saved. Physical things didn't change. What things changed then? What old things passed away? Spiritual things. Then what things became new? Spiritual things. Now in context with that, and we know that's through the new birth... Any man being Christ, he's a new creature. Same thing Jesus told Nicodemus. Notice verse 21. For he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us on the cross. Who knew no sin, that we may, might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now we see what the new birth is supposed to be about. It's about a substitution. In other words, we have the ability, the potential... To master the principles that govern the kingdom of God. So that the will of God is done in our lives here on the earth. Just like it is in heaven. By realizing the substitution. That was made. The price that Jesus paid. When he went to the cross and shed his blood. And the results that it was supposed to bring. The result that it brought. To everyone that accepts his sacrifice as their own. And is born again. Is that we become the righteousness of God in him. Now the fact that the Bible says Jesus was made to be sin who knew no sin. Shows us how your righteousness is declared. Your righteousness is of God because you didn't have any of your own. Jesus was made to be sin with your sin and mine because he didn't have any of his own. So you were made to be righteous by his work with his righteousness in exchange for your sin because you didn't have any righteousness of your own and neither did I. Nobody does. Now with that in mind, turn back with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, it's talking about the sacrifice of Jesus again. Notice in verse 17, it says, For if, literally since, the word if, there's four Greek words for if. The first person of the first uh, tense of the, of the Greek word if is the word since. For since, by one man's offense, talking about Adam, death reigned by one. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, spiritual death came upon all men. For since by one man's offense, death reigned. Now get that, death reigned. God's system didn't change, but death reigned. God's system couldn't change. The kingdom of God was still intact. The kingdom of God was still in place. God's will was the same for man on the earth before he sinned as after he sinned. God's will for man was the same in the Garden of Eden when man was in the Garden of Eden as it is for man now, for you and me now. God's system didn't change. But death reigned. Death reigned. Death overshadowed God's system. So that the will of God was hindered from being done in the earth just like it is in heaven. For since by one man's offense, one man's transgression, one man's sin, death reigned by one. Much more. Much more. Much more. Now, let me ask you a question. How sure is it that death reigned over God's system? It's absolute. Much more. Much more true is what he's going to say next. Much more absolute, much more, much more sure is what he's going to say next. Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Now, whose is the gift of righteousness? Everybody that's been born again. 
Everybody that accepts the sacrifice that Jesus made, the fact that he was made sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life, this life, now, on the earth, by one Jesus Christ. Now, it'd be real easy to read that in simplistic terms and say, much more everybody that's been born again shall reign in life by Jesus Christ. But you know as well as I do that not everybody that's born again reigns in life. That's not to imply they don't have the potential or the ability to. But certainly not everybody that's born again lives up to it. We can all agree on that, can't we? That's where so many of the questions come from about what's God's will for me in my life here on the earth because everything seems to go against me rather than for me. But notice he's talking about an absolute. Much more, those which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Let's substitute some definitions here, some things that we've seen to be true from previous scriptures. Much more, those that receive the gift of righteousness that comes by Jesus paying the price for man's sin and the new birth that is affected through the acceptance of that gift shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Instead of reigning in life, let's use masters of the principles of the kingdom of God. Shall master the principles that govern the kingdom of God. What's the effect of that? Reigning in life. The will of God being done in your life here on the earth. Just like it is in heaven. Just like it is in heaven. What's the most important lesson Jesus taught his disciples? Anybody want to take a shot at that? Be real easy to say love. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love your God. With all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's great. Maybe we should qualify our question. That would certainly apply if we're talking about the greatest of the commandments. To be an example. To the world that we're born again. But will that cause you to reign in life? Folks, I would submit to you that there are denominations that have majored on love. That have zero power and a very poor understanding of the character and the nature of God. It seems that there's one, one sense of receiving. And the word receive here in, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 17 literally means to take hold of. There seems to be one means or one way of receiving. Well, I don't want to say it that way. Let me, let me change my words. There seems to be one aspect of receiving eternal life. By accepting the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. To be born again. And another means. Or another area of taking hold of. Receiving or taking hold of. That which will cause you to reign in life by Christ. Yet it's the same principle. It's the same principle. It's the same faith. That brings you into the new birth. That will cause you to reign in life. What's the difference then? One person masters it and the other is just experiences. Jesus talked about mastering. He said he'd give to the church the keys of the kingdom. He'd make us masters through knowledge of who he is. He'd make us masters of the principles that govern the kingdom of God. Govern the will of God being done in your life here on the earth. Now if we ask it that way, what's the most important lesson Jesus taught his disciples to be masters of the kingdom of God. That becomes easy for me. Mark chapter 11. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain. Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart. But shall believe. That those things which he saith shall come to pass. Shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you. What things soever you desire. When you pray. Believe that you receive them. And you shall have them. The principle of faith 
is without question the most important lesson that Jesus ever taught his disciples when it comes to mastering the kingdom of God. Yeah, but what about love, Pastor Mike? The Bible says there's three things, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest one is love. Well, Jesus covers love with the next verse in Mark chapter 11. Verse 25, he says, when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anybody. Faith does work by love, but love without faith will not make you a master of the principles of the kingdom of heaven. You know, we we never have... uh, Let me say this the right way. People wonder about the future of churches. What are churches going to be? What's the vision of churches? And people have questions about things like that. Well, the first generation of the church, the vision is easy to identify. The church takes on the personality of the pastor. That may be bad news for you. The vision of the church just becomes an issue in the second generation. Well, because I am a low-key individual. That's fair to say, isn't it? You look up low-key in the dictionary and you'll see my picture. (laughs) Because I'm low-key about things, we've never made a big deal about testimonies. Maybe to our detriment. That's not to say we don't glory in testimonies, but we don't build on them. And so a lot of times I'll find out six months later that somebody had a testimony and I'll say, well, why didn't you tell us? Well, I know the answer to that. They think, well, what would you have done if I had told you? You never talk about testimonies and so what's the big deal? And there's a, there's a positive and there's a negative to that. If you spend all your time talking about testimonies then you've always got to outdo your last story. Jim Andrews told me that on the mission field, about the mission field. He said when we first started on the mission field, we started putting testimonies in our uh, newsletters. He said that was great for a couple of months, but then we felt under pressure to outdo the last story. Because people would see a a lesser testimony coming out one month and think, well, they're going backwards. They had more than this done last year or last month or whenever it was. So the positive side of that is, You're not building on testimonies, but the negative side of it is that people think nothing's happening. But it's a regular thing for us to get reports, whether by email or on the website or whatever it is, for people to watch us on TV and to get answers to their prayer. Sometimes they're healing testimonies, sometimes they're job reports or or something that happened to people on their jobs or whatever the case is, raises or whatever. It's a regular thing. I won't say it's a weekly thing. But it's a regular thing for us to get reports where people just simply hear the word of God, put it in practice, and it works. Folks, you can't overemphasize the principle of faith. No matter how tired you may get of hearing it. There were times when Brother Hagin would say, turn to Mark chapter 11. I'd think, oh, dear God, not again. You know what I wish? wish I could hear him teach it again I wish I hadn't taken for granted some of those times when I thought not again you just can't overemphasize the principle of faith it's the foundation for everything you can't get saved without faith you can't forgive without faith you can't receive anything from God without faith you can't receive the will of God you can't take hold of the will of God in your life now without faith Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I've been believing God and nothing has happened. Well, there's good news. You're further down the road than you used to be. Yeah, but when is it going to happen? I don't answer when. I don't have the answers for when. I just know that the Bible says that it is. It's not my job to figure out when. It's my job to keep my heart from doubt. It's my heart and my job to speak the word of God from my heart and not anything else. Because that's the principle that masters the kingdom of God. That's the thing that will make the will of God come to pass in your life. Yeah, but I tried that and it didn't work. 
Well, that's right. You tried it. It doesn't work by trying. It works by doing. Without question, the most important lesson Jesus taught his disciples when it comes to mastering the kingdom of God, when it comes to receiving, taking hold of the will of God in, in your life here on the earth is the principle of faith. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Stop talking to God about your problem and talk to your problem. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. Don't talk to your problem about how big it is. Tell it where to go. And shall not doubt in his heart. Don't let any words come out of your mouth to the contrary. But for how long? Forever. Just settle on it being for forever and then, it's, then your, your question's answered. See, folks, I'm not going to start talking sickness after I receive my healing. So it's not an issue for me. I'm going to talk healing while I'm under attack. I'm going to talk healing after the attack is finished. So I'm going to keep my heart from doubt no matter what the circumstance is. And you should too. Amen. What about prayer? Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire. Do you realize what a blank check that is? What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive those things that you desire and you shall have them. Having is God's part. Believing is yours. We try to do God's part for him. Tell him when we should have it. Your job is the believing part. God's job is to see that you have it. Without a doubt, that is the most important lesson, the most important principle that governs God's will being done in your life here on the earth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you've given us the knowledge of who you are. That we might be the church. That we might demonstrate to the world that Jesus is the risen Savior. We thank you, Father, that you've given us the knowledge of the truth that we might be masters of your kingdom so that your will is done in our lives here and now just as it is in heaven. We know that you don't change, Father. You'll be the same when we get to heaven as you are right now. You'll want the same things for us there as you want for us right now. So we thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. We speak your word and only your word. In the name of Jesus, we declare that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We declare that we're abundantly provided for in the name of Jesus. We declare that we're above only and not beneath, that we're the head and not the tail. We're blessed coming in and blessed going out. We're blessed in the city and blessed in the field. Everything we put our hand to prospers, Father, according to your word. We thank you that we're redeemed from poverty, sickness, and spiritual death. Jesus was made a curse for us that we need not bear the curse for ourselves. Thank you, Father, that your word is true. Thank you, Father, that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. Thank you, Father, that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Thank you, Father, that this is a victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Satan, we take authority over you in the name of Jesus. We command you to take your hand off of our bodies. Take your hands off of our finances. Take your hands off of our loved ones and our families. Take your hands off of our jobs in the name of Jesus. We speak blessings in everything that we encounter. We speak blessings in everything that we touch. Thank you, Father, for the privilege and the authority that we have to subdue the earth, to subdue the enemy when he rises up against us. We declare that we are the healed of God. We are the blessed of God. We are the provided for of God. We are the head and not the tail. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Father, even as Paul said, 
All things have been put under Jesus' feet. But it doesn't look like it at this point. We don't see everything put under Jesus' feet so far. But we do see Jesus as our example to operate above the work of the enemy, to destroy his works, to loosen, dissolve, and to remove every evil thing that the enemy has brought against us. Thank you, Father, for making your word good in our lives. We trust in you, Lord. And even as your word says, you will keep us in perfect peace because our mind is stayed on you because we trust in you. Thank you for the peace of God. Everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 I've got one message for you to close with. Don't give up. Don't give up. Yeah, but it's been a long time. Then don't give up. Yeah, but I just started. Then don't give up. Don't give up. God's word cannot fail. Amen? Amen. Well, let's all stand together. I want to thank you for coming out on Thanksgiving Sunday. That's a kind of a different time for us. Most of us woke up this morning feeling like it'd be better if we stayed in bed. Especially a rainy Thanksgiving Sunday. We love you and we appreciate you putting the word of God first. God will see you through. Amen? Amen. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us tonight if you can. And you're dismissed.